Welcome to another message in God's wonderful Word. Here at the Hillsdale Bible Church, we aim to learn God's way that we might live God's way. May the words you hear today draw you closer to Him. Open your Bibles and your heart as we learn together in this message. Alright, back to John chapter number 1. This morning we were in verses 9 through 13, and we're going to go back to those verses again. We had the first view of this section, and that was regarding those who reject him. And now we're going back over the same verses and talk about those who have received him. This is a much happier theme this evening than it was this morning. Uh, Verse number 9, there was... The true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. Great section. Great section for us, especially as we as we read these words now, we find the the joy of knowing him. We have received him. We believe him. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? We read these words and we say, Oh, I'm so glad to be on this side of the sermon instead of the other side that we had to deal with this morning. Um, As we look at this again, the declaration that Jesus is God is evident in this passage. All the way from the very first words he he wrote on the page, that which was from the beginning. Speaking of God, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, The declaration that He is God permeates this entire book, this this whole gospel as well, but especially this first chapter. He is God. That is a presentation of what we celebrate here at Christmas time. It's it's not just a baby in the manger, right? It's not uh, a, a, a symbolic thing of new life. As they they even do that with Easter as well. They they say, well, it's just about new life. It's much, much more than that. It's about a Savior, and the only one who can save us is God. That's an important combination to put together. Man cannot save you, right? 
Yes, thank you. All right. Man cannot save you. You can't save you. No one else can save you. Only God can save you. So if Jesus can save you, who is he? He is God, right? It's just that it's like math. If you take it real simple, these parts go together. And it's just the way it ought to be. So John is declaring him to be God in this passage. And as I said before, this morning, it just is such a remarkable thing that the world would reject him. The world that owes their life to him. The world that has been created by him. All these individuals who have lived on this planet, that they would... That they as a whole, as, as mankind, would turn their back on God. And he would come then to speak to them. We say this every now and then. We're, we're certainly not in any position to do anything about it. But if we were in God's shoes, what would we have done with a world that rejected us after we had made it? Aren't you glad you're not God? <laughs> you know what we would have done? Smash it. Get rid of it. Start all over, right? Wipe it out. He didn't do that, did he? That's a remarkable thing about our God. He came to this world. That's mercy. That's grace. He came to this world, even knowing that this is the world that rejected him. He came to this world to save them. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. As we walked through this, we saw that first view this morning of those who have rejected him, even with all the testimony in front of them. All the testimony, as John looks back 60 years and he, he's writing these words out, no doubt these thoughts are coming to his mind. How he healed the, the lame, how he healed the deaf, how he healed the blind, how he had brought back the dead. All those miracles we read about, these people experienced, and they rejected him. The lepers who were healed, there was rejection that followed this. The people who, of all people, should have responded were those who were supposed to have known the scriptures, right? And they are the ones who seem to be leading the charge in rejecting him as we read in Scripture. It's just an amazing thing that God would disclose Himself so clearly before them. And John's even writing after the resurrection. He's watched the testimony of the, the apostles go out into the world. He's seen them preach in the, the cities and the towns of, of uh, Samaria, and even into Asia Minor, and over into the territories of Greece down to Corinth and all the other places. Uh, he would have, John would have known of the witness of men like the Apostle Paul, who have gone from town to town and, and all that he did, and Peter's ministry and, and all the other apostles, and the beginning of new churches and, and the growth of churches. And still, the world rejects the message. That would have had to have been an astounding thing. Are we any different today? No, we're not. It's still true. And the testimony is here. 2,000 years almost, right? Of folks declaring the gospel. Of pastors in pulpits, of theologians writing their books, of teaching in the schools, uh, of all the missionaries that have gone forth throughout our world. You would think by now we'd have it figured out. 
But this world still rejects. That's astounding to me. And when you think of it percentage-wise, we talked this morning, percentages of, of such, like one out of every seven people would take their Christmas gift back. All right? Uh, think of this number, and I don't even know how to put it down in numbers. But Jesus said that the road to destruction is wide and many are on it. And the road to life is narrow and few there are that find it. What kind of percentage does that look like? I don't know. I've, I've played with numbers in my head. I would like to lean more toward 40% because you can't go 50 because that, that just doesn't mathematically work right there. I would like to think 40%, but I think that number is still too high in our world. I think it is. I, one time I used to think, well, uh, let's at least say 10%. And then I would count cars coming toward me. Every 10th car, that's a believer. Every 10th car. That, you know, if you think that way, nine cars go past you first. They don't know. They don't know. That's an incredible thing to me. All that Christ had done, and the, the gospel itself that's gone forth, and the fact that that they still reject him. Now that's where we were here this morning. Let's line out the facts again, just so we see them one more time, as clearly as John portrays them here in verse number 9. He starts with the true light. There was the true light coming into the world, enlightens every man. Jesus is the true light. I spelled this out a little bit for you in the sense that he's the true light in contrast to deceivers. He's the true light and the real light in contrast to what is dim and shaded in pictures and types. He's the actual light in contrast to all others that reflect light from another source. He is the supreme light in contrast to all that is ordinary and common. He's the pure light. He's the, the genuine light. He is the perfect light. Put the superlative you want in front of it, and it matches him. He is the epitome of all that you can say when it comes to light. And yet he is the word. He's the message that God wanted to communicate to us. It's everything about him, right? He is the light. He's everything... Uh, that we need to see. And he shows us that. Everything we need to see is set out before us. And yet, even though he, being God, the creator of this world, and, and all that is says of him as the word, as a life, as a light, this passage says he came into the world. Right? Came into the world. What a glorious thing that is. He, he actually came into the world where we are. We read some scriptures, how God had been getting their attention in Romans chapter 1, through creation, and they rejected that. They turned to idolatry instead. He spoke to them in the prophets, and what did they do? They killed them. He sent his son, Hebrews 1, 2 says. He sent his son so that they could be illumined, so that they can see, so that they can understand. But were they listening? Apparently not. The light has shone and, and they have not responded. I love that passage between uh, 
uh, Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9, the last section there, it talks about people who live in darkness. They walk about in darkness. And it's all gloom in the land. And it's all because they had disobeyed the Lord in the first place. But they're in this very dismal, dark, meaningless, hopeless existence. And then it says, and the light shined on them. <laughs> I love that picture. The light shines. It reminds me so much of how he comes to uh, give us understanding of who he is. When I was uh, young, I, I grew up in a Methodist church. Uh, my mom would have us go there. For a while she taught there and she used to look back at that and say, you know, I didn't even know the Lord. And they had me teaching Sunday school. And uh, then she took care of my grandparents, and since there were six of us, and I was one of the youngest, and my oldest brother could drive, we all loaded up in the truck, and she'd send us all off to church so she could stay home and watch uh, my grandmothers. And um, for years we went there, just years we went there, through the routine, through the whole thing, just sit there in the chair. I, I learned to read out of a hymn book because I was getting used to seeing the words and things like that. And for years of my life, that's where I was. It wasn't until I was in, uh, I was 12 years old, somebody was speaking, and it was, it was about the driest lesson that you could imagine. And yet, all of a sudden, it dawned on me. He died for me. That was all like a revelation out of the sky. He died for me. I had heard how many times he had died. and never realized it was for me. And it was like a light. Click it on. All of a sudden, oh, that's what it is. I love the way he does that. And if he doesn't do it, who can? He's the light, right? He's the light. He gives light. He illumines as we see it here. He, he comes with a message. He makes it clear. He, had, he announces it to us. He has come into the world. What a wonderful thing He has done for us. That He would come into the world. Now, His approach is rather surprising. We look at it at the Christmas season. He came as a baby. This is God's wisdom. It's incredible, isn't it? If you had to think through the scheme of how you were going to get man's attention, is that the right approach, at least in your mind? Pick a baby and put it in a very obscure place so people don't notice where it's at. It's in a manger, right? And have parents that people are just not quite sure of their relationship anyway. They're supposed to be married. They're not married. They're engaged. But she's great with child. You start putting all the pieces together in the world, we'll look at that and say, that is the strangest approach to introducing the true light. But that's how God did it. He could have did the big flash and the bang and everything else, and boom, there's the light. Everyone understand now? That's what it's all about? He could have done. But he didn't. He came into this world. The scripture says he, he, he took on flesh, and He dwelled among us. He dwelled among us. His years of ministry, some 33 we believe, He dwelled among us. This world, even though it was made by Him, He walked on it. He, he breathed our air. He saw our dirt. He lived in our world. 
He ate our food. He came down among us. Isn't that astounding? A God would love you that much, He would do that. He would move to your place to live with you so that you can know who He is. He tabernacled among us. This is God. We say Emmanuel. What's that mean? God with us. What a precious thing that is. Mary, I love Mary's uh, uh, statement of praise. We, we use it for a lot of different things, but in the book of Luke, she, she declares her praise, what God has done. And, and it's a rather lengthy section, but right in toward the end of that, these are the words that Mary says. She, is, she says, He has given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy. He came to give us help. Help! And that's what we needed, right? We were in darkness. He came to give us light. He, he came into the world. That was the fact that we were recording this morning from verse number 9. He's the true light and He came into the world. Those things are very important for us to mark here. And He came to His own. Verse number 11 adds to that. He came to His own and those who were His own did not receive Him. But He came to His own. Now, he knew exactly how his own would receive him. He knew exactly what the prophecies were. Matter of fact, he had told those prophets to write them back in the Old Testament. Now, that's where it starts to rattle the mind a little bit, right? Who told them to write? The Lord said, right? Who is the Lord? Ah, uh, this is great. He was part of the whole thing. As the re- record was, was put down as to what would happen to him. That was written under his instructions. And now he stands here and he says, I've come to my own, knowing exactly what they would do. They did not welcome him. He came to his own, even though they would not welcome him. Came to his own. In his great omniscience, he knew they would reject him. But he came. He came to his own. There are places we wouldn't go because we don't feel welcomed, right? I won't go there. I don't feel welcome there. Maybe you know of a few places like that. that You just don't feel welcome there. We read of the fact that uh, there were no rooms in Bethlehem. We read of the fact that Herod wanted to kill him. He pretty, pretty nearly did the way he went about it, right? Killing all those babies in the territory of Bethlehem. The religious leaders didn't even take the time to check the prophecy that they read to him that day. When he asked them, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And they said, ah, it's in Micah. It's Bethlehem of Judea, right? Remember they said that? Six miles away from where they were and they didn't even go and look. And what was that prophecy about? It wasn't about a baby. It was about the ruler from eternity being there. And they didn't even go and look. That's amazing to me. He came to his own town in his ministry and they told him to leave. Threatened to stone him. He went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. There was this wild man in the tombs who was tearing up people and just a a frightful thing anyway. 
he came and cast the demon out of the man. Demons got into a herd of pigs. Remember the story? Down it went, right? What did the townsfolk decide they wanted to do? Get him out of here. Get him out of here. They chased him out of town. All these scenes over and over of the people rejecting him and and willing to toss stones at him and then eventually yelling those words that we know so well, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But wouldn't you rather have him over Barabbas? No. Give us Barabbas. The rejection. He came to his own. You couldn't have found a more unwelcoming place. But he came anyway. He came directly to those who would reject him. You know, I'm very glad he did that. Because it speaks volumes about my own heart. And where we all are, truly. As enemies of God, before we're saved, we live in darkness, we live in sin, we live in rebellion, we're called helpless, we're called hopeless, we are called enemies of God. Do you think that he would have found a welcome place in our homes prior to our salvation? No. We would not have wanted him. We would have been uncomfortable with him. We wouldn't have wanted to be convicted by him just by his very actions of what is righteous. We would have felt self-conscious and we would have been uncomfortable and we would have desired him to leave. But he came to the very ones who will reject him. And I'm glad he did it. Because that's what we needed. We would have been just like that. He came to his own. I like that. And then the, the phrase that comes out of all this, with the facts of what he has done, coming into the world, coming to his own, coming to those, it says in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. As many as receive him. As many as receive him. Does that sound like a wide open door? An invitation? As many as received him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. The theologians always have this argument going on. Is it that the invitation is so wide open that anyone could come? Or is it limited to only those that God has selected? The theologians will never solve that. They could be on that topic forever. They won't solve it because the answer is yes. God does both. And that's the amazing thing about our God. As one person had described it years ago, as you're going into heaven, there's a sign above you that says, Whosoever will may come. And if you step inside and look on the backside of the sign, it says, Chosen from the foundation of the world. Can God do both? He certainly can. And if it doesn't reconcile in my mind, that's okay, because a lot of things don't. And that one certainly is beyond me. But this is that beautiful phrase, When he says, he came unto his own, and as many as received him. There's something very comforting in that. Because as many as received him, uh, that many 
we're made children of God. As many as received Him. If 500 welcomed Him, 500 became children of God. Everyone who received Him became a child of God. Everyone. Because that's the picture of this passage. As many as received Him, to them He gave. Underscore that word, gave. Even in the receiving, they're not doing something to earn it, are they? He gave it. He gave it. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Oh, I love that phrase. What's it mean to become a child of God? That little word in the Greek is, is from our word, uh, ginomai. That's a fun word. Uh, a lot of my students get it wrong on tests all the time. It's, it looks too much like other words, and they're always confusing that. There's three of them that look alike, and they always scramble those for some reason. Maybe I'm not teaching it well. I'm not sure yet, but maybe it's just them. I'll hold it that way for a while. Uh, but genomai is, is more than, than just being something. It's the, the idea of becoming is to take on that appearance, to assume that character, what you weren't before you are now. And it's used somewhat in the concept of, of those who, um, I know we use this negatively more times than not, but they go into the theater and they're going to play a role, a various part for something, and they assume that character for the role. And they're convincing because of the way, hopefully they are, they can act it out on the stage. They have assumed the character. They have assumed the appearance of something. Yesterday, Megan and I went down to watch The Nutcracker in uh, Oklahoma City at the ballet. Beautiful, beautiful scene. It was, it was wonderful to see. Those people do not wear those costumes every day. They only wear them on that set when they're doing the production, right? Certainly that mouse king doesn't go home like that. Uh, but when you, when you think of the, the picture, uh, they weren't that, but they became that. And that's the only part I want you to, to grasp from the concept, is that we weren't children of God, but we became children of God. That's something He did. He changed us. Changed everything about us, our appearance, our character, you name it. He has changed us to become children of God where before we were enemies of God. He gave us the, the right, the authority to be called children of God. Do we consider that such an honor? To be called a child of God? To have the right to wear that name? God's name? To have the right, the authority to live by that name, to claim the promises of Scripture, to hang on to the promise of eternal life. Do we have that right? Yes. Why? Because He gave it to us. Didn't He? Isn't that precious? This is what He's done. Those who have received Him, He gave them. He gave them the right to be called the children of God. The right to become, even to those who believe on His name. i read you a paragraph here. I think it's wonderful. But if the world knew Him not, and Israel received Him not, was the purpose of God defeated? No, indeed. For that could not be. The counsel of the Lord 
shall stand. The marvelous condescension of the Son could not be in vain. So we read, As many as received Him, to them He gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. This tells us of the human side of salvation. What is required of sinners, salvation comes to the sinner through receiving Christ, that is, by believing on His name. There is a slight distinction between these two things, though in substance they are one. Believing respects Christ as He is exhibited by the Gospel testimony. It is a personal acceptance as truth of what God has said concerning His Son. Receiving views Christ as presented to us as God's gift presented to us for our acceptance, and as many as, no matter whether they be Jews or Gentiles, rich or poor, illiterate or, un- or learned, receive Christ as their personal Savior, to them is given the right or the power to become sons, children of God. I love that phrase. Just what he's done. There's a picture, every time I hear of it as a gift, I have this, uh, this remembrance that comes to me, this is the best way I could describe it to you. There's a gift that's been given to you. Scripture says that God gave us His Son. And uh, those who receive that gift, they have eternal life. And I said, let's picture a Christmas gift. And you take this gift, and there it sits under a tree, and it's got your name on the tag. Whose is it? He says, well, it's mine. I said, really, it's not yours till you take it. It's got your name on it, but it's not yours until you take it. And so it sits under this tree, and Christmas season goes by, and you never take that gift. But it's got your name on it, but you never received it. You left it. And they take down the tree, and they put everything away in January, and leave the gift sitting there on the floor. And it's got your name on it, but you never took it. And Valentine's Day comes along. And you look over there across the room, and guess what's still sitting over there? A gift with your name on it, and you never received it. You never took it. And you could go all the way through the year until the next December when they set up that tree right over top of that gift one more time, and there it still sits with your name on it. I said, when are you going to take the gift? That's the picture I get every time I read of this. He came to his own, and as many as received him, to them he gave. He's always been giving. And he gave. He gave us the the right to be children of his. What a precious thing for those who received. For those who received. It's not by blood. It's not by the will of the flesh. It's not by the will of man, but it's of God. And that's important at the end of verse 13. This whole transaction is not anything that we could have done. Nothing we could have done. It's all of God. It's all of God that we are saved. Not one thing have we contributed to that. It's not of blood. That's the divine side that sits right before us. And that's what I'm emphasizing as as we go through here. One person said it's not a matter of heredity. Regeneration does not run in the veins. It's not the will of the flesh. The will of the natural man is opposed to God. And he who 
He has no will Godward until he has been born again. It's not the will of man, that is to say, the new birth is not brought about by some well-meant efforts of friends, nor the persuasive power of the preacher. It's of God. The new birth is a divine work. Only God can do it. Only God can do it. That's what our passage has been telling us, right? He is God, who is the only one who can save you. Him. He is the only one. That's what He did. He saved us. Jesus said it this way to Nicodemus, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed at what I say to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's no other way to be born. He saved us, Titus. Uh, heard from Paul one day. He saved us, not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, He did it. He did it. I like being on this side of the story, don't you? To know that uh, what we have received, what we have believed, even that, was a work of God in our hearts because Jesus shown it to us. And unless he had done that, we would have never known what to believe. We would have never known what to receive. But he came. That's why he gets the glory, right? That's why he gets the glory in all this. So as we wrap up here for our evening here, there are just simply two views we've been looking at from this little passage. Those who reject him, those who receive him. Those are the two. The rest of the world is wrapped up in those two categories. Those who reject Him, those who receive Him. I trust that everyone here is a receiver. That's what our desire is. That's what I hope that's where you're at. But let's talk to the Lord about it. Heavenly Father, since salvation is your work, you know every single need in this heart, in this room. You know exactly what is needed. And if there's anyone that might be among us who have never received you, draw them to yourself, we pray. That's your work. For many of us, Lord, perhaps all of us in this room, we have received you, and we rejoice in that tonight. What great things you have done to bring us to understand you, bring us to receive you, to believe you, to be called children of God. What great works you have done to bring us to this place. Thank you, Lord. You get the glory and the credit and the honor for all these things. As we look upon our season before us yet, we thank you, Lord, that we know why you came. And we thank you that you did come. We needed you, and that's exactly what you met. We praise your name tonight. Look forward to a week before us, and perhaps, Lord, you might give us the opportunity to share these very words with somebody else who needs to hear it. Make us sensitive to the needs of others, just to proclaim how great our God is. We'll give you the glory for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.